Aloha. Thank you for tuning in to the Indo-Pacific Current, a discussion-based podcast endeavor to explore and discuss trending geopolitical issues in the Indo-Pacific, hosted by Pacific Forum. Featuring voices and experts from across the region, the Indo-Pacific Current holds conversations aimed at further strengthening policy collaboration. To stay up to date with Pacific Forum, please follow us on social media at PAC Forum on Instagram and at Pacific Forum on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. And now, today's episode. Today, we are joined by Courtney Weatherby, Deputy Director of the Stimson Center Southeast Asia Program and Research Analyst with the Energy, Water, and Sustainability Program. Her work focuses on infrastructure and energy development challenges in Southeast Asia and the Indo-Pacific, particularly on food, water, energy nexus issues in the greater Mekong region. Aloha, Courtney. Thank you for joining us today, and welcome to the Indo-Pacific Current. Thank you, Mark. I'm glad to be here today. Yeah, it's great to have you again in our show. Um, Courtney is back for this special episode of the Indo-Pacific Current. She was a panelist during our fourth session on advancing digital solutions, renewable energy, sustainability, climate change, and smart cities, and also participated during our Twitter space event, The Wrap. In those discussions, uh, Courtney shared with us her perspectives regarding the opportunities and challenges that the United States and Singapore can both leverage and address given the shifting energy security and policy landscape in Southeast Asia. And today, Courtney joins us again in this special curated series of the Indo-Pacific Current to dive deeper into Southeast Asia's growing energy demand against the backdrop of rapid digital transformation and the structural changes in the international system. The confluence of these factors uh, brings opportunities and challenges to Singapore and the rest of Southeast Asia as they grapple to meet the demands of rising energy prices as well as their commitment in meeting their respective carbon emission targets. So to kickstart our conversation, Courtney, can you give us a broad picture on the current landscape of Singapore and the rest of Southeast Asia from the sort of viewpoint of energy security and sustainability amid the ongoing war in Ukraine and also the sort of protracted tensions between the US and China? Sure. And, uh, you know, it's energy is a complex system, so there's surely a lot to cover there. The first thing to get out is that each country in Southeast Asia is in a sort of different and unique position. You've got countries like Singapore, uh, which are largely developed already. You've got countries like Indonesia, which still have millions of people who don't have reliable electricity access. And so you've got kind of this dynamic situation across the region where electricity demand is growing, um, but at slightly different rates and yet rapidly as a, as a region as a whole. So Southeast Asia is set to add almost the equivalent of Japan's entire electricity system into the regional grid in coming decades. So you've got many countries uh, which are rapidly expanding every year to meet rising electricity demands that's hitting 10%, in some cases, almost 20%. Um, and then you've got some economies like Thailand and Singapore, which are larger, which have a larger baseline starting point for electricity demand and are growing, albeit at a more slow pace, you know, under 5%. Um, but the, the key sort of shared challenge is growth. All of these countries are facing electricity growth, which really translates to significant infrastructure needs. You know, you need to build new power plants, you need to build mm -hmm. new trans 
transmission lines. You need to build distribution in urban areas. Um, and at the same time, faced with these massive needs to expand electricity production and access, you also have the, the growing pressures of climate change. Uh, so you've got you know countries which by and large are still dependent on fossil fuels. There are a few exceptions to this. The Laos's energy system is dominated by hydropower, large scale hydropower production alongside fossil fuels. But many countries in the region are very dependent on coal, on natural gas, on oil. And in many cases, if you look at the national power plans that were put in place a few years ago uh, and which are still active, um, that the region is actually expected to increase the role of fossil fuels in the future uh, to up to 81%, even as many of these countries transition from dirtier fossil fuels towards natural gas, which is relatively clean, but is still not renewable energy. So you're facing sort of this challenge of what to do with the fossil fuel mix in the region, uh, a region which is very vulnerable to climate change. So Southeast Asia is, you know, island geographies in many countries, long coastlines in others, a significant portion of the population is close to the sea. Uh, so you've got a lot of these areas that are vulnerable to both sea level rise um, and you know extreme weather events. Uh, so these countries are vulnerable to climate change and yet they're, they're building infrastructure to meet needs that have to be met, uh, but which are exacerbating climate change. So you've got sort of this tension as countries are also seeking at, as they expand their electricity supply to diversify in some cases quite rapidly into new alternative technologies like solar and wind. Right, that's really a, a, a great uh, broad, broad strokes, like a broad brush of, of the region and the challenges that they face that. As you said, on one hand, um, they're trying to improve their economy but also at the same time, they could be stifled by these growing demands to meet their carbon emission targets. And also, you know, this uh, growing threats uh, that we see from the climate uh, insecurity um, uh, across the region and this growing consciousness across the region and climate change. But in, in your uh, special piece, uh, in the special, your policy piece in the special publication, uh, it's entitled Digitalization and Sustainable Energy in ASEAN. I was really, uh, stunned when you mentioned that ASEAN is not on track to reach to reach its uh, renewable targets to replace fossil fuels until 2034. And so my question is, what are the long-term and sort of short-term implications uh, to the region's energy sustainability and economic development? Should ASEAN fail to meet these targets? It's a challenge that has to be met regionally when you're thinking of the shared agreement to get a certain percentage of electricity mm -hmm. from renewable energy. And yet it's also a challenge that has to be met nationally because ultimately energy plans are made at the national level and investment is done inside a specific country under a specific investment regime and, and regulatory regime. And so I think ASEAN as a whole is sort of behind track. Some countries are ahead of track and other countries are behind track. So I do think you're sort of looking at I don't want to say necessarily inequalities within ASEAN, but opportunities rather to share lessons learned from successful deployment of renewable energy uh, in countries like Vietnam, which have started to move very quickly in recent years, um, and countries 
uh, like, like Indonesia uh, and the Philippines, which have targets in place, but are not on track to necessarily meet them on the anticipated timeline. I, I think when we're looking at sort of the, the near term through, you know, the late 2020s and early 2034, and then the long term, the big challenge for ASEAN is that if countries fail to meet the near term targets, they're locking themselves into a system with often relatively new investments in coal or in oil or natural gas, which maybe cannot continue to be supported as countries rush to meet their later targets, which often involve you know, carbon neutrality or net zero carbon emissions within a few decades. So, you know, most of these countries, they have a specific target on the books in the national power plan of, you know, anywhere between you know, 10 to, to 50% renewable energy by the 2030s or early 2040s, depending on which country and depending on what their timeline is for, for integrating those renewable energies. Um, but many of these countries also then have a target only two decades later, by 2050, by 2060, to meet carbon neutrality. So if you're not meeting these initial targets, there's still time to catch up. But that often means that you've seen continued investment in oil and gas uh, and coal. And many of those investments are going to become potential stranded assets, which will pose a challenge to the broader energy system as it tries to belatedly catch up on the energy transition. It's great that you pointed out this sort of um, significant delays that if uh, some members of Southeast Asia are not able to meet this sort of initial targets, and that spills over to the you know net zero carbon neutrality goals. And the war in Ukraine and someone who's been looking at the gas prices uh, across Southeast Asia and its implications to, as you said, you're also doing research on food security. How will that impact meeting this initial targets? Because now we're seeing in the equation this unexpected and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. And it's uh, the, the negative implications are spilling over, not just within Europe, but across the world. And Southeast Asia's energy demands is, is definitely under great strain at the moment. And we are unsure how long will this war last or endure. So how will this Ukraine-Russia um, war impacts ASEAN's energy sustainability or energy transition, um, given this growing sort of demands for countries across the world to achieve net neutrality by at least 2050? I think there's really sort of two two challenges involved with the energy system that come out of the, the war with Ukraine when we're looking specifically at Southeast Asia. And I think the first challenge and question is really tied to sort of the global energy markets, right? When we've seen these skyrocketing prices for uh, for oil, for gas as a result of the Ukraine crisis, this is not just affecting the area that the war is taking place in, but because these markets are global markets, they are affecting the price everywhere. So we've seen countries, particularly developing countries in Southeast Asia, but also South Asia, also Africa, you know, other other parts of the world also suddenly struggling with price. Um, many countries, and I know specifically in Southeast Asia, many countries are net importers of oil and gas. You know, they, they need to import from the global market. Many countries do have sort of a historical preference for signing long-term agreements with one supplier at a set price, but many of them have in recent years been shifting towards a spot market, and they are now struggling on a cost consideration. You know, when the prices of natural gas have skyrocketed, this is making some countries reconsider, well, you know, we can't afford to import this much natural gas, so they're considering capping 
imports of natural gas, they're considering fuel shifts to oil. Uh, in some cases, there have been discussions of returning to coal, which many countries have recently started to eliminate from national energy plans because of carbon considerations. Um, I mean, even the coal prices are going up as a result of sort of these, these global volatilities. And so I do think in the short term, what we may see is a shift to cheaper, but also dirtier fossil fuels in terms of not necessarily the pipeline of future projects, but in terms of the electricity production and the electricity mix we're seeing right now. And that's that's obviously a concern for the short term in terms of the, the electricity outputs and carbon outputs for this year and for the near term. But it does also raise a number of questions about the long term, because many countries in the region were doing a fuel shift towards natural gas under the assumption that would help reduce their, their carbon emissions from coal, from oil, and could ease the transition to future more green supply of renewable energy and energy storage and whatnot. Obviously, if the price of natural gas is untenably high, this may cause countries to reconsider the role of natural gas. And the big question or concern is, are they then going to push back towards dirtier energy supplies or and here's sort of the other factor or question coming out of this recent volatility and crisis, or will this push them to move towards greater and more rapid investment in alternative renewable energy supply? You know, I, I think that there's there's arguments to be made in both of these cases. I do see some positive outlook coming from the fact that, you know, this, this question over price, this question over supply chain becomes a little bit less of an issue for renewable energy, because once you've installed solar, once you've installed wind on your domestic soil, it's there. Once it's already built, it's no longer subject to price volatility on a, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Certainly the whole situation with supply chains being impacted first by the pandemic and then by the Ukraine crisis, you know, looking at the food supply issue, for instance, this does, I think, raise a lot of questions about sort of globalization within the energy space. It does raise questions about, you know, minerals and, and other equipment that needs to be used for renewable energy, whether that's looking at solar panels or lithium ion batteries or other technologies technologies that do require specific, very global supply chains, sometimes supply chains with bottlenecks. I think that's a discussion that we'll see playing out uh, that may, you know, again, drive some changes in this space. But I do think that sort of the, the rise in price for natural gas and the energy security concerns related to global supply chains may ultimately actually help push renewable energy transition. Because to date, a lot of the, the push and the drive for renewable energy investments has come from either climate and carbon considerations or increasingly from simple cost considerations that in terms of, you know, one kilowatt hour of electricity in many places around the world, solar is by far the cheapest option. So you've got sort of a profit motive, you've got a climate and environment motive, and now you've also potentially got an energy security motive to expand renewable energy as an alternative to fossil fuel. So I do think we're going to see sort of a very messy situation in the near term because of limited supply, because of volatility. But I do have hope that out of this, we may see sort of a more rapid push for expansion of renewables in the longer term, even if in the immediate term, we are seeing sort of a return to dirtier energy supplies. Right. And you actually mentioned as well in your piece, this ongoing sort of diversification of energy resources and energy mixes across Southeast Asia. Where do you see the uh, digital transformation or adoption of digital technology play an important role in bridging this sort of gaps uh, in terms of energy demands and energy transition, given the sort of landscape that you just laid out for us? 
when you're looking at sort of the energy space and digitalization, there's really two sort of key zones that um, digitalization benefits will really fall. The first is in terms of easing the integration uh, and management of renewable energy technologies like solar and wind. And the second is in terms of energy efficiency, both on the supply side and on the demand side. So when you're looking at renewable energy integration, one of the key issues or challenges with solar and wind is that they operate very differently from traditional power plants. So if you look at, for instance, if you look at a coal plant or a natural gas plant, they produce electricity on demand. You know, it's a fuel-based system. So if you need to produce more electricity, you can burn more fuel uh, up to sort of the installed capacity of your system, and you can ramp up or down throughout the day as is needed. And and on a somewhat predictable basis. When you're looking at solar or wind, obviously the sun is not always shining. Uh, the wind is not always blowing. And so you do see greater volatility in terms of moment to moment power production. Uh, and that can pose challenges to national electricity grids in terms of both managing the stability of the, the grid and also in terms of ensuring that you've got enough electricity to meet needs. And I think within the renewable energy space, particularly solar, there's sort of this added additional challenge of decentralization of the energy system, which is a very positive development. It may reduce the need for um, so much investment in sort of large-scale centralized national grids, particularly for areas where the terrain doesn't support that at a cost-effective manner. Um, but it can also lead to just an exceptional growth in the number of grid connections. So for instance, I think Vietnam is a great example of sort of a shining star in the renewable energy transition for Southeast Asia because they've deployed so much solar power so quickly. Vietnam had almost no solar installed in 2017. They now have more than 16,000 megawatts of solar installed, you know, only five years later. So that's a rapid expansion, but that also comes from more than 100,000 individual solar rooftop units. So when you've got 100,000 new connections to the grid, that's a lot more that the grid operator has to manage. So even though some of those, you know, a few hundred of those are very large scale commercial plants, the rest of them are largely rooftop installations on commercial malls or buildings or warehouses or, you know, manufacturing plants. So it, it, it really requires just tracking a lot more data uh, in order to effectively manage this system, in order to effectively manage the variable power production. So I think there's real opportunity when, when you're looking at sort of digitalization and digital technologies in this space. Um, digitalization allows for smart metering, so you can access moment to moment, second to second, millisecond to millisecond data on what's going into the system, what's being pulled out of the system in terms of demand. Um, it allows for the use of um, better data collection and data analysis uh, of, you know, what are the general trends for power production from this wind or solar plant, which over time, as you get operational experience, allows for better forecasting. So you can then anticipate, you know, at certain times of day or certain times of year, um, when when production may rise or fall. If you integrate weather forecasting into this, then it can allow for much better planning on sort of a daily or even a weekly basis for when you can tell that solar or wind production may drop and you need to sub 
substitute something else. So I think just the, the sheer amount of data uh, and data processing uh, that can be done if you're integrating smart meters and if you're really sort of modernizing the way that these grid systems and power plants are being operated offers huge benefits and will really ease the integration of these renewable energy technologies, which otherwise many utilities consider kind of a challenge um, or, or would view as sort of a, an obstacle to their integration. In your piece, you've mentioned the use of blockchain technology and its role in renewable energy certification. What are some of the important um, concepts or ideas that we can take away from, from this sort of growing um, use of blockchain technology in renewable energy certification? When you're looking at renewable energy, one of the key drivers for the adoption of renewable energy is actually consumer interest. You know, you've got consumers, whether that's households uh, who are trying to purchase sustainably or, in many cases, um, industrial customers or large scale users of energy who have their own commitment as a company to meeting renewable energy targets. So, you know, just as countries have renewable energy targets, these consuming companies also often also have energy targets, whether that's 100% renewable, whether that's net zero, whether that's something else, you know, they, they have these targets. Often those timelines are a little earlier than the countries. So if you're looking at companies, many companies have a renewable energy target of 100% by 2030 or 2035. That's obviously far ahead of what most countries in Southeast Asia are aiming for the energy supply on the grid. So you run into this challenge where consuming companies uh, who are purchasing electricity from the grid are concerned about meeting their targets because they need to show that they're buying renewable energy. So a renewable energy certification system basically allows for the utilities or another third party to track how much renewable energy is being produced and then who is purchasing it. And it basically provides confidence to the consumer that they are actually purchasing an equivalent amount of renewable energy from the system and that they're sure that they're getting renewable energy. And it is important to note that the way that grids operate, you actually can't tell exactly where every individual electron that you're purchasing is coming from, but tracking that the amount of electricity you're purchasing was actually produced by a renewable solar or wind project somewhere and sold into the grid is kind of the next best thing. And it's essentially a functional way to manage trade in renewable energy. Now, this is obviously posing sort of challenges for uh, the system in terms of making sure that what you're purchasing is actually renewable energy, you know, making sure it's not being double sold. So you can't have a utility saying that they're selling you renewable energy, but maybe they're also selling your neighbor the same renewable energy from the same power plant, right? So there's sort of this security aspect of this. That's where blockchain comes in. So using a blockchain tracking system um, allows for much closer tracking of electrons as they're sold into the grid and then to a consumer so that a consumer can guarantee that they're purchasing exactly the amount of renewable energy that they're getting blockchain certificates for. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking mostly in terms of sort of large scale consumers uh, purchasing through the national grid, but blockchain actually has another benefit, which is that it can support sort of very closely managed and tracked electricity trading between peers. So you can have, for instance, a mini grid, whether that's in an urban area or a rural area, where people are building rooftop solar, they're producing more electricity than they need themselves, and they're able to sell that to their neighbors. And again, blockchain allows for sort of tracking through this system. It really allows for transparency and security uh, of who's selling what, 
what type of power you're buying. Um, and it really just kind of provides peace of mind. So that's a scheme that is being piloted in a number of places globally, but I'm aware of at least in Southeast Asia, at least one pilot scheme in Singapore that's using blockchain for peer-to-peer -peer trading. So when you're looking at the region as a whole, one real opportunity, and I think this is a particular opportunity for Singapore, given kind of the limited land space for deploying large-scale renewable energy domestically, um, you know, blockchain renewable energy certification could, for instance, allow Singapore to purchase electricity from Malaysia, which maybe was supplied somewhere else in ASEAN through grid connections, uh, and they could track sort of what type of energy they're purchasing um, and the amount that they're purchasing and ensure that it's coming from renewable energy locations. So for instance, a good example of this could be a financial institution that's based in Singapore that needs to purchase renewable electricity. Singapore's uh, national electricity supply right now is is by and large coming from natural gas. So there are a lot of exciting rooftop solar schemes inside Singapore, which could potentially benefit from the same type of peer-to-peer -peer trading scheme. But until that scheme is in place, um, some of some of the this power could be met through importing renewable energy from neighbors. There's a pilot scheme going on right now, which doesn't use blockchain, but does make use of regional electricity trade to sell hydropower and in the future, maybe wind power from Laos through Thailand through Malaysia, and then into the Singaporean grid. And I think that's where we see sort of the opportunity for these renewable energy certificates and a blockchain system to allow a company based in Singapore, like a financial institution, to sort of sign on and purchase directly from that hydropower company, and then have it tracked through the system and know that that's what they're supporting. It's great to see such dynamic, they're bringing it out that, you know, this that, that there's ongoing um, intra-ASEAN, at least collaboration in these areas. And also, I think the U.S. Um, has expressed interest to keep working in the region on these areas, as we've seen in the U.S. ASEAN summit, uh, where uh, they have cited energy as a critical area for collaboration. Uh, there has been a lot of discussions about initiatives um, to ensure clean energy in the region after the summit. But how do you see these proposals going forward? I think it's worth noting that there's been a lot of collaboration to date already in the renewable energy space. So a lot of the U.S. assistance in uh, the clean energy transition has come not necessarily through direct investment in renewable energy projects on the ground. Uh, the U.S., you know, there are exceptions to this, but American companies are not huge infrastructure, physical infrastructure investors in ASEAN right now. But what the U.S. has done for a long time and very well is technical capacity building in this space. So, you know, there's been a number of previous projects, Clean Power Asia is, is a great example of them, of one uh, to really sort of build capacity and build knowledge and build interest inside governments in the region, as well as other stakeholders about what are the opportunities with the renewable energy transition. And I think that this is sort of on display when you're looking at some of the, the, the projects proposed, uh, both before and, and after the, the special uh, summit between the United States and ASEAN that took place in May this year. Uh, we did see clean energy or energy broadly mentioned uh, most after health. Uh, if you look at sort of the, the mentions that were given in the joint statement itself, energy was clearly there as an emphasis. Clean energy was, was a number of those mentioned. And there are a number of sort of recently announced U.S. initiatives in this space, such as the U.S. Southeast Asia Smart Power Program that aimed to, to build on those previous capacity building exercises. They're trying to catalyze blended finance and public-private partnerships to meet clean energy needs in the region, including through regional 
electricity trade. Uh, so I think when you're looking in this space, there's there's certainly space for growth and interest in expanding U.S. investment in physical infrastructure and clean energy in the region, as well as an expansion and continued engagement on that capacity building side to take sort of lessons learned, both positive and negative, I think, from the United States' own experience integrating rooftop solar, uh, integrating wind, integrating solar into sort of regional and national grids to Southeast Asia as these countries do move towards both higher levels of renewable energy at home, as well as sort of a broader regional energy trading scheme. Um, and you know that the example that I gave a minute ago with Singapore purchasing electricity through Malaysia, Thailand from Laos, that's a great, a great example of where the region could go. It's still fairly early days. So I think there's a lot of spoke scope and a lot of space for the United States to sort of provide additional technical assistance and training and you know, high quality infrastructure investment as this grid is further built out, as these interconnections are expanded, and as the region sort of collectively decides how it wants to target national and regional uh, investments in the energy space. In, in the same vein, the Biden administration also, right after the US ASEAN summit, they also unveiled the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework as you know, serving as an engine to drive uh, the region's energy sector to achieve uh, sustainability. In this conversation, how do you see this sort of um, a greater regional framework such as IPEF and the US ASEAN dynamics playing into sort of this complementary dynamic to bring forth these goals of achieving energy sustainability? What do you see at least in the immediate horizon with regard to IPEF and the role it can play in assisting not just Southeast Asia, but also the greater Indo-Pacific region in terms of energy, sustainability, and helping countries have a better sort of policy understanding and capacity building in achieving energy transition. You know, IPEF gives gives noticeable focus on climate and mention of energy. And I think that's that's worth recognizing and it's valuable. I do think IPEF is still it's still in its infancy, right? It's it's still young. It's a new initiative. There's really not, there's been some sort of a, a framework put out there. It hasn't been really fleshed out or, or provided with a lot of detail yet. So in that sense, I would say IPEF is a great opportunity for the United States and its partners in Southeast Asia and the broader Indo-Pacific to sort of identify where there are opportunities for integration of standards and sort of learning and sharing across these borders. Because, you know, I was talking earlier a lot about ASEAN's energy demand, but the Indo-Pacific more broadly is sort of the future of electricity demand and energy demand. So those issues that I was talking about in ASEAN with the expanding electricity access, while also trying to navigate the clean energy transition in these global volatilities is equal equally true for South Asia. Uh, it's equally true for many of the Pacific Islands. You know, most of those countries also have rapidly rising electricity demand and similar technical challenges. Uh, so I think the issues that are of most import today when we're looking at sort of energy um, are, you know, the same issues I talked about before with technical capacity building. I think there's real scope to sort of I don't know about, and again, I don't know if IPEF is exactly the right framework for this because a lot of this is technical capacity building needs, but I think there is real opportunity for IPEF discussions on the energy space and on standards within the energy space to then lead to shared, uh, coordinated, uh, larger regional engagement on clean energy transition, whether that's through 
technical training and capacity building on grid operations, whether that's looking at renewable energy trading schemes, like I mentioned, you know, that these renewable energy certification schemes and blockchain schemes, these are all fairly new. So there's a lot of opportunity to invest in pilots around the region to share lessons learned through that space. Um, and then finally, I do think that the U.S. efforts to crowd private investment in here would benefit from um, IPEF looking at standards for supply chains and sort of the projects that are being built. I know standards are sort of a key element of a lot of U.S. engagement in the region looking at norms. I do think oftentimes that's framed as a response to what China is doing in this space, including through its infrastructure investments and energy investments, which are a huge part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. So I do think to the extent that uh, these issues can be placed firmly within the region's needs, what is actually needed to meet needs on the ground, um, and what can we do to make sure that that's done sustainability, sustainably and in a high quality way um, is the right framing here. And I do, I personally do think that there is space for China to play a very positive role in that, actually. And I do think, you know, IPEF itself may or may not involve China, given the geopolitics, but I do think that there is value in considering the beneficial role that China can play uh, in the region, just given the sheer amount of funding that it's bringing in and the important role that China plays in the solar energy supply chain. For better or worse, when you're thinking about the role that China plays in the supply chain or in infrastructure investment, um, United States alone and even the private sector alone is not going to come in and fill the infrastructure investment gap in the region. So I think as long as the US and IPEF are able to sort of identify clear opportunities for norms, for standards, for high quality infrastructure, this will have benefits for the region and also could ultimately potentially be one of the few areas where everyone's interests are aligned in the long run in addressing energy needs and climate considerations. Thank you so much, Courtney, for that very, very comprehensive insight about how the region can move forward in achieving energy sustainability and also how we can frame these issues from the lens of the actual needs on the ground. And I think sometimes it get lost in, you know, in all these conversations and geopolitics, what is it actually is happening in at least in Southeast Asia and your astute knowledge and in-depth understanding of the region bring this very nuanced perspectives, uh, understanding the in understanding the trajectory of Southeast Asia's uh, hopefully you know um, smooth transition to energy sustainability. And we thank you for uh, sharing your insights with us and and for always being so supportive of the U.S. Singapore Tech and Innovation Virtual Series. Before we go, um, I'm just interested to ask if you have any recent or upcoming projects you'd like to promote to our audience. Um, well, I guess one opportunity here is to sort of highlight the study that came out just earlier this year, which was looking at the renewable energy transition uh, in mainland Southeast Asia and linking that to river conservation, because including in our discussion today um, and, and many other energy conversations, the huge focus is always on, you know, reducing carbon emissions and how to adjust and replace for fossil fuels in the energy supply system. But I do think when we're thinking broadly about climate change and climate environment crisis, um, it's worth considering as well that the renewable energy transition is, is only one piece of this and that there's an equally important aspect when you're looking at conservation and biodiversity that is often left out of this conversation, even though it intersects with the energy space, particularly in Southeast Asia, where hydropower, uh, including large scale hydropower, is a key part of the, the energy supply and the future energy plans, but also has significant impacts for energy security. So uh, our study on alternative uh, energy trading scenarios between Thailand and Laos. 
which consider renewable energy alongside river conservation and hydropower development done in a strategic manner. Great to have you here at the Indo-Pacific Current and we look forward to having you again very soon. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Brittany. Thank you for thank you for hosting me, Mark. <laughs>